Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts, and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries, and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy, and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone, and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Dukkha. Can we say that together? Dukkha. Dukkha is an interesting word that's almost impossible to translate into English. Usually, and unfortunately, it gets translated as suffering. But the word suffering has so much baggage uh, in our culture. It's two words put together. The first, do, is where you get the English word dirty. And ka is from the compound term akasha, or akash, which is the Sanskrit word for space. So dukkha means a dirty space, which is that space in us that cannot be satisfied. That inside of all of us, there is something that can't be satisfied. It's moments of time built into our experience or constructed by our experience when we feel a sense of lack that something is missing. And all of us try to fill up that space any way we can. You try to fill up that space with your Facebook friendships. Oh, if I just have enough friends, then I'll be okay. We try to fill up that space with romantic love. Anybody heard of this romantic love? Okay, not so much in Ireland. In North America, we have this thing called Hollywood, that has produced romantic love, or the absence of it. So one of the fantasies of romantic love is that one person is going to satisfy that lack in the center of my life. And if you've ever tried romantic love, you know that it doesn't work, actually. I'm all for romance. I'm a romantic myself. But also to rely on someone else or to rely on a way of being seen. It's almost like that inner five-year-old we all have that just wants to be liked. And if I'm just liked, then everything's okay. But actually, it's not. Because the inner absence of satisfaction is actually built in to the self Because the self can't ever be grounded. Because the self is a story. Or a conglomeration of stories. 
So it's always anxious because it can't get grounded. You see? And this dovetails so beautifully with consumerism. Because if I can't get grounded, then if I buy something, or if I get enough capital, then I'll be secure. Like there's a time of the year in Canada where the banks do a lot of advertising to invest in retirement plans. Do they do that here in Ireland? Yeah. And all the, and all the advertising preys on your fear that you will not have enough money when you're older. But actually, there is something more existential at play there, which is that really it's touching that fear in us that we're not at home. We're not home. You see? So, good advertising figures out how to get into that space. In the Tibetan tradition, there is a teaching about dukkha called the hungry ghosts. And the idea in the hungry ghosts, and if you see this in art, it's really amazing, the, the, the uh, visual rendition of this mythology, which is there's a big banquet table. So it's like cinnamon down the road. Has anybody here been to cinnamon down the road? They have every dessert you could ever imagine piled up in this big, huge pile that probably if you had even just a hundredth of a piece, you would go into a coma. (laughs) So there's this big banquet table with all of this food, and sitting around the banquet table are all of these ghosts with very thin necks. Their necks apparently are so thin that they couldn't even get rice, one grain of rice, down their throat. And their lips are parched, and they're so hungry. And they're carrying very long utensils that are five feet long. So when they go to the banquet and they pick up the food, they can't get it in their mouth. So they're so hungry. And it's said that you are a hungry ghost, that you have in you This insatiable appetite, this wanting, that cannot be satisfied. And the paradox of the image of the five-foot-long spoon is that what they don't realize is that if you have a five-foot-long utensil, you could feed other people. But when you're so obsessed with your own wanting, you, you, you don't even see other people. You don't even know that other people have needs. I'm sure you've had a lover say this to you. You're so self-centered, you don't even realize I have needs too. Okay, maybe that's my own biography. (laughs) That's why relationships are so terrible. Because other people will point out your self-centeredness. Because in your self-centeredness, you can't see them. And that's why relationships are so painful and why they're so healing. So, in the heart of life is this experience of dukkha. And one of the core teachings of the Buddha, often misunderstood, is that when dukkha is present 
Our practice is to embrace it. So when there is this sense of not being satisfied, our work is to open to the experience of dukkha without trying to fill it up. Because we start to see that when you have craving, the craving component of dukkha, when craving is present, nothing can satisfy it. Imagine this. Imagine you're walking downtown. You're in Temple Bar. And you walk by a store with a beautiful pair of shoes. And you say to yourself, And then you and, and you don't say this out loud, because you're a yogi, you're not supposed to like shoes. And you say to yourself, if I had a pair of shoes like that, I would for sure have a husband. <laughs> or a better husband. <laughs> okay. So what the yogi does is instead of seeing that the arising and absence of craving is something you talk yourself into or out of. Instead, the yogi sees the shoes and sees how beautiful the shoes are, but just opens up to the experience of craving and says, oh, this is what craving feels like. You see? So you pull the energy away from the object and you just open up, oh, this is what wanting feels like. Just like yesterday when we talked about the riding the wave practice, you ride the wave of the wanting. And then the yogi is doing a deeper practice, which is the renunciation practice, which is learning how to open to wanting until you can experience the cessation, niroda, or the absence of wanting. And then you're really working with the knot of dukkha. You see? This leads to the second characteristic. And the second characteristic is impermanence or unreliability. That everything that we lean on is changing. So, if everything that we experience is changing, that when you try to make what's impermanent permanent, you get dukkha. So that's how the first and second characteristic are connected. That dukkha is when you're trying to make what's impermanent permanent, and then it changes. And it's said that dukkha is based on getting what you don't want, getting what you don't want, change, unreliability, and being separated from what you love. All of us have had this experience. Uh, Loving something and being separated from it. Somebody dies, you lose a, a piece of land, you lose a job, you get dumped. Which is someone was saying yesterday doesn't happen in Dublin. Yeah, that's a really good question. So the question was, if if I can paraphrase, if everything's changing, how do I stay motivated? Right. 
So in Western philosophy, this is called Nietzsche. <laughs> this is called nihilism. Okay? And this is the conundrum of the teenager. Right? Which is that, because teenagers start thinking a lot about death. And then they start realizing, if everything's changing, who cares what I do? Why should I go help the environment, join Greenpeace, get a job, become something? Climate change is happening. I'm going to die. My parents are going to die. Everything's changing. Who cares what I should do? I should just listen to Marilyn Manson all day. <laughs> Never leave my house. And, you know... Sniff glue. <laughs> Not biographical. Um, so, now, and then if you combine that with the belief that God is just a human invention, then what do you have to rely on? If God is dead and everything's changing, then who cares, actually, what I do? So, in, in the tradition of both the yoga tradition and the Buddhist tradition, the response to nihilism is that one does not understand karma. That there's a misunderstanding of impermanence because the teaching of karma has been left out. Because the core teaching of karma is that everything you do makes a difference. And so karma is the response to impermanence. That yes, everything's changing. So how do you fall down, get back up, and love again? How do you fall down, get back up, and love even more deeply? How do you fall down without falling into cynicism, uh, becoming jaded, or being haunted by the past? So how do you get hurt? And then use the openness of your heart in being hurt to love again much more deeply. And I don't mean just loving another human being. I also mean loving your own life and loving the life of your city, the life of your geography, loving the animals and grasses and rivers that support you. You see? And that commitment to love is the functioning of impermanence. Because you realize, actually, the love gets deeper because of impermanence. You see? And this is really, really important. So it's not just that everything's changing. It's that everything's changing and everything I do makes a difference. Everything I do makes a difference because it has an effect. And if I just sit here and I'm cynical about my life, then that's what I'm contributing. And then if I feel, wait a second, I want my values to line up with my actions, and then karma starts coming along. The third characteristic is not-self or emptiness. Uh, the word that we translate as empty comes from the Sanskrit word shunya, or emptiness is shunyata. Um, the word shunyata begins with the compound shu, which is a verb, which means to swell. It's how you refer to somebody who's pregnant, is they're swollen, 
They're swollen with life. So, emptiness is very misunderstood as a term. Shunyata means that everything is so swollen with everything else that there is no such thing as a thing. Do you understand what I mean by that? It's like when I inhale through my nose, at what point does the breath stop being air and become Michael? And does anyone want to put my finger, or their finger up my nose and try and feel, right? Or it's like if I have, if I go to Nick's down the road, have I mentioned Nick's yet? <laughs> if I go to Nick's down the road and I get an espresso, <laughs> um, yeah. At what point when I'm drinking the espresso does it stop becoming espresso and actually become my body? Right. So when you start to meditate on these things, you start to see that there isn't such thing as a thing. That everything that's a thing is part of a vast web that is so much bigger than that thing. And then you see, the same is true for yourself. Your sense of self is dependent on your culture's understanding of gender, of your own experience of yourself that's been internalized from your family and your upbringing, the stories that you tell yourself based on your joys and your wounds and your fears and your ambitions, but when you really look closely, there is no thing in the middle that is me. So there's two really important things about this. One, that you don't exist the way you think you exist. Okay. Number two, this is the tradition's critique of religion. The tradition's critique of the idea of a soul that we think that deep down in us there is something that doesn't change, that continues in time and space, and then when you die, it's reborn. Both the Buddhist tradition and the yoga tradition use the teaching of emptiness to critique that assumption in religion. Saying that if our moment-to-moment -moment experience is a conditioned phenomenon, coming and going, right? Just like, remember the diagram yesterday of the six kinds of consciousnesses mm -hmm. coming and going? Where inside that is the soul? You see? Where is that? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, the Buddha called it, the Buddha called the teachings of emptiness not self, which has been misunderstood as no self or no soul. It's not saying that there is no soul. It's just saying that there is not self. Do you see that? Because if you said, oh, well, there's no thing there, well, that would be just like reverse theology, saying, oh, well, there's no soul. So when you have pain arise, you can see how the pain arises in conditions. The conditions change. But there's no thing in there that is the core of the pain. 
This is such a relief, I think. At first, it's kind of intellectual. Like, what? I don't exist. So, so in Western philosophy, there are two words um, that help describe this. One is called ontology, and one is called epistemology. Or I, I also call it psychology. So, psychologically, there is a sense of self. We have a story about us that we relate to and come back to, and it's healthy to feel a sense of self. But ontologically, there is no such thing as a self. You can't find it. And there's a really good story about this, about this student who's so confused when he hears this teaching. His name is Vajagota, and he goes to the Buddha and he says, please tell me, is there a self or is there no self? Just tell me once and for all. And the Buddha remains silent. So Vajagota leaves, and he thinks the Buddha doesn't know what he's talking about. And the Buddha has this right-hand man, who is my favorite character in Buddhist tradition, named Ananda. And I always like Ananda, because he's the only person in the community who doesn't get enlightened in the Buddha's lifetime. And so Ananda starts feeling really bad that Vajagota left. Imagine if you're like the Buddha's right-hand guy, and someone asks a question, and then they leave. You'd start to feel, oh. So, so Vajagota goes after, or Ananda goes after Vajagota and says, Vajagota, don't leave. The Buddha, he really does get it. Just pay closer attention. And so Vajagota says, okay, well, what did he mean? And Ananda says, I don't know. <laughs> so Ananda goes back to the Buddha and says, when Vajagota said, is there a self or is there no self? Why didn't you answer? And the Buddha says, if I said that there is a self, it goes against my teaching." that all things are conditionally arising, right? Everything is interdependent. And if I said there is no self, then he would think that there is no self. But there is. Do you see what he's getting at? So that's why I like translating it as not self. That nothing is I, me, or mine. Nothing. No thing. And so the reason why it gets translated not as swollenness, but as empty, because what it's saying is that emptiness is a strategy that you use to see. It's a lens you use to see that there is no thing. Right? Something is empty. Empty of what? Empty of an inherent substantiality. So, those are the three characteristics. Um, Dukkha, impermanence, not-self. What interests me is, how do you build a life out of those teachings, rather than creating a whole theology based on your past life, your future life, how the world was created, what's going to happen when you die, um, is there a soul? Is there no soul? Is the body the same as the soul? Is the body separate from the soul? Is the mind part of the body? Like all these questions we ask. But actually those questions are all a distraction in a way and should be put in brackets and put to the side. 
that those are not actually the questions that help you live a life. They all will just give you new stories. And those stories become old stories. So the teaching is not that stories are bad. The teaching is that a story becomes suffering when you don't see the story as a story. And that's what we do personally. We don't see the stories we have about ourselves as stories. And what's beautiful about meditative practice is even if your technique is so-so, the stories start falling away. The second place stories don't work is that we have stories about other people. And when we don't see that our theory about someone is only a theory about someone, love gets compressed and fragmented. So, because love only arises in the absence of you framing somebody or something. You see? And third is countries have fixed stories about other countries, which makes it really easy to kill people. And until nations can recognize the stories they're superimposing onto other nations, then they can't have insight into the compassion that allows for a more interdependent reality because they think their stories are real. <laughs>